0: This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by Epsigon and Amazon Web Services. This week I finished my chat with Alex Castleboney about optimizing your Lambda functions. This is Serverless Chats, episode number sixty-nine. sort of the having to run this on every function and you know and you make maybe you make a change to a function you do something like that it just becomes very very um tedious and probably a lot of work to run this on every single function but as you start to see you know it, it, you run it on a few functions maybe different types of workloads those patterns start to emerge right
1: absolutely there are there is not an infinite a set of patterns. Uh, I have identified about six or seven. Uh, usually you end up in some of these. There are like uh, other patterns where the output is a bit randomic, meaning there is either some downstream dependency that is not scaling as well as Lambda is. Mm-hmm. So you might see some noise in the data, but uh, yeah, usually you end up in one of these categories uh i think there is a a last category that is a bit special where you actually are downloading or uploading a lot of data i've seen this Mm -hmm. on you know with s3 maybe you need to download you know 50 or 100 megabytes of data from s3 i wouldn't recommend you but if you really really have to do that um the power tuning implications are very interesting in my opinion because uh if you also change one line of code, and uh, I did this experiment with Python, so it was uh, pretty easy. I think you can do also the same with Node or Java or other SDKs. So if you enable the multi-threading option in the SDK, you know, especially at a high power, like above 1.8 gigabytes, you get mm-hmm. two cores. And so, if you start downloading or uploading using ten or twenty threads, you actually see a massive difference there. Um, so you, you might see, you know, ten percent improvement for cheaper cost. So if yeah. that's what you're doing with Lambda, uh, you might consider full power. But again, check the numbers.
0: Right. And the other thing too is again knowing you mentioned Python knowing your runtime is important because Node is single-threaded. So even if you do go over the 1.8, you do not get a second core um, because Node doesn't work that way. Um, All right, so you mentioned something really interesting, and I I think this is another fascinating thing about pay-per-use services, is Lambda has a 100-millisecond billing model. So if you run something for 99 milliseconds, you pay for 100 milliseconds. If you run something for 101 milliseconds, you pay for 200 milliseconds. So I think an important piece of this, if you are trying to optimize for cost, is also understanding um, that billing rounding thing, right?
1: Yeah, that that's true. I I um, I've been talking to some development teams, and you know. It's very common that you develop a service application and you end up, as you were saying, with 10 or 50 or 100 functions. And uh, you know, one day the manager wakes up and wants to optimize for cost or for performance. And you're like, sure, but where do I start? I have 100 functions. But I think it's also important to uh, know what your functions are doing to detect the right pattern and to know where it makes sense to optimize. There are cases where uh, your team or yourself or your manager may want to only optimize for cost. It's a cost optimization project whatsoever. And uh, you might end up optimizing some functions where there is no way that you can actually shave off enough milliseconds to go down one level, one 100 millisecond level. So maybe you're just optimizing for the user experience, which is great. Or maybe it's not a customer facing app, so it doesn't matter. Um, but I think it makes sense uh, to understand where cost and per- how cost and performance are related in serverless. Because sometimes they are aligned to each other, meaning you can optimize for both just uh, in one shot. Um, right. But you still want to be aware, especially if it's about prioritizing between a large set of functions. Uh, Actually, I got that feedback a lot. I think if I see a direction of lambda power tuning evolving into something that would help a development team handle multiple functions, you know, I build something like a prioritizer or something that helps you detect those kind of functions uh, more easily, or you know, to help you with a with a batch of functions, for example.
0: Right. Yeah, no, I think that, that would that would be another very cool project to have. <laughs> um, but I, I think you you asked the right question there. And at least um, this is something for me is sort of what are you what are you optimizing for, right? Are we trying to make the user experience better so we have lower latencies? Are we trying to get the costs down um, you know, on the on the back end for uh, you know, maybe if we're running ETL tasks and things like that. Um, those are certainly things where I think this comes in. Um, really, you know, this is an important, uh, an important thing to consider is to say, you know, are we trying to save, you know, ten bucks a month um, from our front end just so that, you know, we, we're, we're again saving ten dollars a month, but maybe it takes one hundred and twenty milliseconds for our API to respond, or are we trying to save, you know, potentially thousands of dollars on the back end if we're running these complex ETL tasks? And that brings me to something. So Joe Emerson, who runs Brandt's Insurance, right? He posts every, uh, every month, he usually posts a, 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 a screenshot of his bill. And running an entire online insurance agency, his Lambda bill was $22.65. So is optimizing for cost in that situation something that should even cross your mind?
1: Yeah, that, that's a fair question. It probably isn't uh i would still suggest you run lambda power tuning because uh you might be willing to pay $26 and get a 30% performance improvement right so it's not like one or the other uh depending on your scale depending on the use case depending on customer needs you might decide to invest on performance and with lambda it's pretty simple you can visualize it you have one uh knob and uh, it's fairly simple so as i was saying it's almost free <laughs> to run the this power tuning process uh, i've seen customers right. who actually run it at every deployment basically multiple times a day and it's still less than a dollar so you know why not
0: yeah yeah and i and i totally agree with you i think the performance aspect of it is the biggest thing to optimize for and when you see when you see you know, tweets or um, blog posts that criticize serverless performance—it's often because they don't have a knowledge of what it is that is possible to tweak. Um, but again, like again, going back to the idea of being able to measure that is an important uh, is a, is an important component. So. So let's, let's get into more specifically some of these things you can do because these things that you do to these Lambda functions, then running, because uh, again, if you just run Lambda power tuning and you see, okay, this costs, or I can get better performance if I turn the memory up, that is not the only way to get better performance. It's not the only way to optimize your cost There are so many other things that you could potentially do um, that, would, that would bring those things down, either lower the execution time or some of that. Um, so let's get into those. And I know you do a lot of presentations, all virtual now, unfortunately. I mean, again, I wish we could all get back um, doing presentations again. Um, but I know that you you like to break these things down into um, a couple different categories of optimization. So obviously, we have sort of our general optimizations that we can do. But then we have things that are very specific for cold starts. Um, and then other things um, that would sort of require you maybe to rearchitect your application. So what what are the maybe you can explain um, you know how you approach those categories?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so it's uh, if what you're concerned about is cold start, we, we talk about, talked about it at the very beginning. There are a few things you can do there. It's not likely to be the majority of your executions, but if it's customer facing, you do want to optimize for a, for a cold start. It's about monolith, avoiding monolithic, monolithic function. You can optimize your dependencies, or rather minimize your dependencies. Uh, in some languages, you can minify or uglify your code. You can try to um, initialize some objects in a lazy fashion. Depending on you know uh, what libraries you're using, you can optimize how you import the SDK components. You know individual clients. You know these are all things that. Allow you to shave off maybe 10, 50, even 100 milliseconds of cold start execution time. So definitely worth having a look. Although I always recommend people, but you know, don't stop there. That's probably five or six percent of your uh, ex- overall executions. You also right. want to optimize all the others. So to optimize all the others, usually you either have to re-architect everything or rethink uh, you know, some components or some parts of your architecture, and you know, that's great if you can do that sometimes. Unfortunately, you cannot do that or you might decide it's not worth it. Many reasons why you may or may not want to do it. But likely, there are some low-hanging fruits that you can actually take without re-architecting anything, basically, um, or refactoring your code, basically. Uh, I, I, we have already talked about one. <laughs> one is uh, memory optimization, resource mm-hmm. allocation, uh, zero code changes, zero architectural changes. We have talked about what uh, you might expect depending on the pattern. Uh, there are a couple more. I think, if I remember correctly, one is the uh, keep alive option in the SDK. Right. Often, you don't want to, you know, re initiate a connection uh, every time you want to talk to DynamoDB or Cognito or some other AWS service and you can just keep that connection alive just with a one um, con- configuration parameter or, or one environment variable. So that's uh, that's a pretty easy low-hanging fruit. You can see massive impact. Not in the call starts because you know if it's a call start, you will actually see the impact of creating the connection, but you will see a large impact in the remaining large percentage of your executions. Uh, right. There are a few more you know very specific to some runtimes or very specific to some use cases, but that's the way I like to think about it. Uh, the rest of the optimization strategies I'm aware of. Unfortunately, it kind of require you to rethink of some part of the architecture. And um, we, we can talk about some of these if you want.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, so one of the, the things I think that is sort of um, really interesting about optimizing once you get past the cold start thing um, is every time you have to make a network call, every time you have to do something that requires some sort of synchronous um, uh, call. You are not only paying for that execution time, right? But you're also, you know, adding extra libraries into your code uh, in order to make that happen. So one of the, the, the cool optimizations, um, or I guess maybe people might not think of it optimization or as an optimization. I certainly do though, are lambda destinations. Because to me, it's like if you have an output of your function that needs to go somewhere having to put all that extra code and wait for the call to EventBridge or wait for the call to SQS or SNS, um, that if you don't have to do that and you can use Lambda function, uh, Lambda Destinations to do that for you, I think that's a big optimization right there. I mean, maybe not a big optimization, but certainly interesting.
1: Well, there are many cases where your average execution time is slightly above one uh, 100 millisecond interval, like 105 milliseconds, 110 milliseconds. Right. And many developers ask me, how do I shave off those five milliseconds? Like I can't touch my code uh, further. And uh, so there are cases where yes, you, you can just delegate to the Lambda service, the invocation of SNS or even bridge or the destination that you want to invoke at the end of your execution. And not many people think of it as a cost optimization or a performance optimization. Overall, it's not like Lambda can do it faster than you then your code would do. So it's not really a performance optimization, but because you're not paying for the execution time of that API call, you might be able to shave off those five milliseconds. So in some cases right. it might, you know, show some uh, some benefits for sure.
0: Hey everyone, I want to thank our sponsor Epsigon and tell you about their applied observability platform for modern applications, which supports both serverless and containers. Epsigon delivers an auto-instrumented trace-centric APM that automatically correlates traces, logs, and metrics that helps your teams reduce mean time to discovering, mean time to repair, and application downtime. And if you're running microservices, you can't effectively visualize traces without some sort of automation. Now, complexity of data in modern applications is growing faster than the ability to manage that change. When using serverless or containers, traditional monitoring tools do not deploy or scale well, leading to limited visibility, which means engineering teams spend a significant amount of time troubleshooting and resolving issues. This decreases the time spent on building new apps and adding functionality to keep up with the competition. If you're building modern applications, ditch the legacy APM solutions that scale poorly, create more overhead, and won't give you the visibility you need into your microservices. Instead, go to epsagon.com slash chats and sign up for an Epsigon account. Try it for free for 14 days, connect your first trace, and even get a cloud observability drone. Once again, that's Epsigon.com slash serverlesschats. Yeah. And so another thing, too, that uh, can really cut down time, especially when um, you are doing uh, warm invocations, is reusing any sort of global variable or connection or thing. Like You mentioned the HTTP Keep Alive. That's great, um, but you're not really maintaining a connection in the same way you would maintain a connection to, say, an RDS cluster or something like that. Um, So the ability for you to, and, and you also mentioned lazy loading in there, which I think is another interesting thing, where you don't necessarily have to connect to the MySQL server when there's a cold start like maybe that function doesn't need to connect to it until it actually needs the connection but once you have the connection um having that glo- uh, global reuse uh, of those variables i think is uh, is another way that again you don't have to keep reaching somewhere to to rehydrate state
1: yeah, there are other cases too, like uh, if you have uh, runtime configuration parameters that you are fetching from Parameter Store or Secrets Manager. So you don't really have to fetch those at every single invocation. You can just cache them locally. And uh, as long as you are fairly sure that the value of those parameters do not change unless it's a new deployment or you know situations like that, uh, you know, you don't really even need to check or to have a, an expiration time for that caching mechanisms. Uh, there are cases there where you know maybe it's a database password, and when you rotate it, the next query is going to fail because it's, that value is not valid anymore. So you may want to have some kind of retry mechanism to uh, be able to detect like I don't know an invalid password error, and then just go and refetch the new password because it rotated. Uh, if you're using Secrets Manager, and then just go on doing what you were trying to do. So there are some more uh, interesting cases there, too.
0: Yeah, and I mentioned um, RDS Proxy, too. Uh, that, Or I don't think I mentioned, I mentioned RDS. I didn't mention RDS Proxy. That is actually another thing where you might not necessarily think of it as an optimization, but if you do not have to keep retrying connections and you you can get that connection pooling on the back end so that you're minimizing the amount of stress on the database because you're using connection pooling. Those are all additional optimizations that could actually make query results come back faster.
1: yeah actually RDS proxy is going to fetch the secrets from secrets manager for you, so that's also that less code to write and also less execution time of uh, of lambda itself to to pay for so. Yeah, the RDS proxy is is very powerful. Um, also, if you think about the resiliency, you know, if, if a node goes down, it, you don't have to reinitiate another connection. It will just migrate the connection to another instance. So it's pretty powerful.
0: All right. So let's talk about a couple of best practices, right? So we talked about some ways to sort of tune um, or to, you know, sort of uh, optimize different things. Um, But there are other sort of, I guess, best practices that can also optimize performance, that can save on cost, um, things that maybe aren't so much tweaking things, just sort of general, I guess, uh, concepts. And and, and the first thing would be orchestration, right? If you're doing some sort of external orchestration, um, why do we use step functions as opposed to trying to write a Lambda function to do that for us?
1: Yeah, that, that's a that's a fair question. Actually, as a as a developer, you know, five years ago, I would have told you I love to do orchestration in my code. It's simple. I don't have to pull in other services. Like I would probably do everything inside my Node.js application or or Java application. Uh, but th- there are benefits to it, especially if you consider a cost. Uh, every time you're, as you were saying before, every time you are invoking an API or idling you know, in Lambda idling means you're paying for nothing, right? You're paying for waiting. And uh, one of the best things I love of uh, step functions that uh, we have mentioned slightly because Lambda power tuning is based on step functions. Uh, one of the best features of the function is that you have actually two best features. One is the wait state that allows you to wait up to, I think a year without paying for idle. So that's great if you have asynchronous stuff, or if you need to wait for human interaction and stuff like that. But also you have the ability to coordinate concurrent tasks that will converge into a final uh, decision step, maybe. And that's usually why you need to wait. Maybe you invoke three APIs, but one takes longer than the other, and you you need some kind of coordination there. So step function, you can do it, you know, it's just a built-in feature, you don't have to wait, you don't have to pay for idle in either of those three concurrent branches, so pretty cool.
0: Right, yeah, and waiting, uh, the, the wait state thing is probably the best. And I, what I would love to see is, especially with longer-running transactions um, uh, or longer-running API calls, I know I have an API call that, uh, that sometimes runs up to 25 seconds to do uh, natural language processing. What would be great is if I could send my payload, disconnect, and then wait for a webhook response when it was finished processing, and then avoid even more of that wait state um, in there. But uh, that's maybe a, a different a different topic. Um, the Another one, though, that I think is important is, and this has to do with architecture and how people think about moving data around, Um, And this is something I think Chris Munn said years and years and years ago. Um, I don't know if it's from him, but he says, um, you know, you want to transform, not transport data with Lambda functions. So what does he mean by that?
1: So it doesn't apply to every use case possible. I think there are cases where... Um, you need to fetch data from somewhere. But you know it could be a relational database, it could be S3, it could be some service that has some nice uh, filtering functionalities. So usually you want to fetch the least amount of data into Lambda, because that means less byte in the network, less uh, idle time, less IO uh, time, basically. So you want to use Lambda to modify data, to manipulate data, Ideally, you probably want to get the data directly in the event instead of having to go and fetch it. So if there is a way to do that, if there is a, a native trigger that will give you the input uh, or if there is a way to uh, yeah, to, to, to get the data you need instead of go and fetch it, do it. Uh, but also sometimes there is a, a, a better way to do what you're doing. For example, there are many Uh, situations where you need to fetch data from S3, but you don't really need to fetch the whole object. It's like if you are doing a select all from your RDS database instead of using a where clause, right? You don't want to fetch the whole database and then do the filtering in your application code. You want to do the database, do the heavy work of fetching exactly what you need so that you can minimize the network, the bytes over the network. And you can do the same many situations, for example, with S3 select. So right. it's kind of like a database, you know, you specify a, an SQL query and you can fetch data out of a large S3 object without downloading the whole thing. So if you are in, in a case like that where you are downloading a lot of data, it's very likely there is a way to only fetch data you need and delegate that computation to another service.
0: All right. And you mentioned um, getting events, um, you know, having uh, sources uh, or uh, certain systems that will uh, send events into your Lambda functions. Um, And one of the things that you see a lot of, especially with certain S3 events and whatever, is that some of those events are going to be uninteresting to your Lambda function. And every time your Lambda function responds to an event, you're going to pay for that processing, even if you discard it. Even if you say, oh, no, I don't care about that event you still paid for the invocation, you still paid for the 100 milliseconds at a minimum um, for it to just say, I don't want this event. There are better ways to do that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Usually in the tree, in the native trigger of Lambda, uh, you can probably add some kind of filtering, whether it's uh, S3 or SNS or other kind of custom events in the AWS platform. If you can filter those out in the trigger configuration, it means you're not going to pay for that. And uh, this is typically not a huge issue, but there are cases where, for example, you want to allow all your customers to upload files, but you only want to process images. Well, there are all things client side, you can do it to avoid them upload PDFs files, uh, but sometimes, you, you know, they will do it anyway. So you really don't want them to reach your Lambda functions and kind of do a denial of wallet kind of thing to, to your architecture. Uh, so. You, you, you really want to discard those events as soon as possible, usually in the trigger config.
0: Right. And then another way that you can potentially save um, some money or you can optimize, I guess, um, how often your functions run is by implementing things like throttling, um, you know, whether through an API gateway or maybe adjusting your concurrency. So how, how do you manage that? Like what are, what are ways to kind of figure out what the right concurrency is or, or how much you should be throttling you know, data to your application?
1: Yeah, I wish I had an answer for that, that we could discuss in a minute. Uh, it, re- it really depends on uh, multiple things. It could be your, your business model, it could be your SLA, it could be a lot of things that does, you know, doesn't allow your customers to invoke you a thousand times uh, per minute or per second or per hour. You know, you might have a freemium business model where, you know, free accounts can only invoke you once an hour or once a minute. And so those decisions are not really about we want to make this thing as cheap as possible. It's more about you don't want, you want to avoid misuse of the service or you want to avoid um, abuse as well of the service. So there are other things that you may not want to do for other downstream reasons. Like you may not want to, delete more than 10 records from the base per second, you know, stuff like that just to avoid race conditions or to avoid more problems right. uh, somewhere else. Uh, usually it's not too much about um, saving money or, you know, those things like if, if you're scared of a Adidas attack, you know, you probably wanna use uh, WAF or AWS Shield or something that protects you at the edge uh, not too much on the API layer or, or Lambda layer, but you can do that. So if there right. are good reasons to set a maximum concurrency for a single Lambda function or for uh, an API endpoint or a single route, uh, you can specify that at the API gateway level, or even at the individual Lambda function level. Always right. remind yeah. though that you have a limited regional concurrency for all your functions. So. Uh, the sum of the concurrent executions is bound to that limit. So you there are other situations where you want to allocate a given concurrency to one Lambda function so that the concurrency of the others is not going to affect the availability of that function. Uh, but again, it's not really much
0: about cost. It's more about resiliency right.
1: and, and availability.
0: Right. And I mean, if you're thinking about tenancy and, um, you know, multi-tenancy for maybe your freemium, but then also you want to split up the tenancy for uh, large paying clients and things like that, then putting them into different uh, different accounts and stuff like that, you can control all that. That's so another way that you could potentially optimize that. Hi, everyone. I want to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Amazon Web Services, and tell you about the new AWS X-Ray integration with AWS Step Functions. With this new integration, AWS X-Ray can provide a comprehensive tracing experience for serverless orchestration workflows. Developers can now view maps and timelines of the underlying components that make up a Step Functions workflow. This helps to discover performance issues, detect permission problems, and track requests made to and from other AWS services. To learn more about Step Functions and the new AWS X-Ray integration, go to aws.amazon.com slash step functions. All right. So uh, another thing I think is super important is um, just as a really good best practices, let's say you go through the power tuning exercise. Um, you want to make sure that you take that information and you bake that into repeatable deployments. So obviously infrastructure is code. Huge, um, you know, huge best practice.
1: Absolutely, uh, yeah. You, you, I think nowadays <laughs> you cannot do a lot uh, quickly and reliably and securely without infrastructure as code. Uh, I still meet a lot of developers that do not do it. I, if there is something you want to invest on in the next six months as a developer, learn an uh, um, infrastructure as code framework. For serverless, you have a lot of options. Uh, I meet more and more people that are in love with Terraform or are in love with AWS SAM or the serverless framework or the CDK. Mm -hmm. To me, it doesn't matter which one you choose. As long as you choose one, you learn it, uh, and uh, you make it your your default in your organization. Um, I've met organizations that use multiple Uh, infrastructure as code tools uh, it's okay i've used many in my career as well Uh, they're all different and all equal in a way Uh, some are more you know vendor neutral some are more community focused some are more you know provided by the vendor so pick your religion here (laughs) and see uh, you know which one works better for you
0: Right. All right. So last one, um, and I think this is an important topic, uh, is the idea of observability in your application. So AWS has X-Ray. There's a ton of other observability tools, but why is having something like X-Ray such an important uh, you know, component in your serverless applications?
1: I think it can give you a hint into what the hell is going on when something goes wrong. That That's the right. simplest definition I can give you. There are many cases. Uh, I was actually talking to a customer a few weeks back that was using, just going back to Lambda power tuning for a second, and uh, they were seeing completely random results. Like, hey, this thing doesn't work. Every time I run it, it's different. Uh, so what I told them is, hey, uh, turn on x-ray, <laughs> and see what's going on. So they had a legacy system downstream based on RDS, single instance, single AZ, and they were testing like 2000 concurrent executions. So that's never going to work, but somehow they didn't have that architectural diagram in their mind and they didn't know what was going on. So that's a typical situation where, you know, a new person comes up or someone is responsible for optimizing for cost and they have no idea what are your downstream services or what might go wrong in the in the overall architecture so having visibility into that uh, is the only way to fix the problem sometimes and uh, if we were talking in 2015 it was uh, a <laughs> was still a hard problem in the in the serverless space i think now you have a, a lot of options out there a lot of um, even community heroes and you know community leaders from AWS and from other vendors as well. So I wouldn't say it's a solved problem, but you also have, you can also pick your, your religion or your uh, uh, platform of choice.
0: Right, yeah. Well, and I think the, the most important thing, especially of looking at instrumentation or looking at um, observability, When you're using something like Power Tools, uh, you know Lambda Power Tuning, and you're trying to um, and you're trying to figure out what is the most, how can you optimize it? If you keep saying, well, if I keep turning up the memory, keep turning up the memory, and it's not having an effect, it's important to be able to go and look and see. Well, how long do these API calls take? You mentioned the third party, uh, the downstream stuff. So if I'm calling some, you know, uh, external API. I, there may be no way for me to shave time off of that. So if you know that it doesn't matter if you have you know three gigs or you have 128 megs, it's still gonna take 1.6 seconds or whatever it is for that API to respond to you on average, um, then there's really nothing you can do to optimize that. Um, but though that's important information to have just as a sort of holistic picture of how to do all this optimization.
1: Yeah, and uh, well, if you are in a situation where each function is, Only doing one thing, maybe talking to only one downstream service, that's pretty easy. You know, you might live without observability. The thing is, it's quite common that you are, uh, I don't know, reading from Dynamo and then putting something into SNS or into Kinesis or whatever other service. And if you're doing two or three things and something's slowing down and there is an error and what went wrong, uh, maybe, maybe you're doing three things in series and you can visualize it in the x-ray trace uh, visually and you say well there is no reason why I shouldn't do it in parallel and you can compress the execution time and do it much faster so it, it gives you visibility into what's going on and for different reasons it might be very useful for troubleshooting for optimization for even just to have a nice picture to post on Twitter so yeah yeah <laughs>
0: Um, that's always a good reason to be able to share your your x-ray uh, waterfall screens. Um, all right. Did we miss anything? I mean, I, I feel like we covered a lot of information here. I mean, we had mentioned the stateless functions thing um, right from the beginning. Oh, actually, I don't think we mentioned stateless functions. We should talk about that for a second. That's another optimization. I mean, you did mention, you know, not trying to hydrate stuff every single time. Um, but again, serverless is sort of meant to be stateless, right? So why why are stateless functions a good optimization?
1: Well, it's not like you can take a stateful function and magically convert it to stateless. It's still about where is the data coming from? Why am I depending on state during the execution, or uh, why am I am I not reading the state from somewhere else? Uh, so, if we have a stateful application that, uh, you know, for example, if you have three EC2 machines and they Rely on some sticky session mechanism so you're talking to the same customer and the session is stored on the EC2 machine instead of a Redis or Dynamo. You know, you might have that problem. I think if you are developing with Lambda, uh, it's less likely that you encounter such a situation where you're relying on sticky sessions or other uh, stateful mechanisms. Usually, you know, you don't really have a lot of storage or a lot of memory to store your state long-term anyway. So there are still interesting things you can do at the design time. So instead of using uh, Redis or Dynamo or MongoDB to store state, you might say, I will inject state into the execution because state is coming from the external service that is invoking my function. So that's a way to uh, make your functions completely stateless and you only have the... uh, the business logic, you don't even have to know where the data is coming from, or where it's going to go next. Right, right. So it's much easier. And I think here, optimizing for cost is not only about execution cost. it's also about the cost of re architecting architecture, the cost of extending True. something in the next six to 12 months, especially if you're using orchestration with step functions. It's much easier to inject state instead of fetching the state from inside the function. So if you put all of these things together, I think it will come natural to design a function that is stateless. Does that make sense? Yeah, I,
0: yeah, no it does. because I, I, i'm a I'm a, a huge fan of of doing that where you're injecting the state along with your payload. Um, I love uh, you know JSON web tokens now uh, if you're doing something at an API level because you've got that signed. Bit of information where even if it's just a uh, user ID or something like that that's passed in it's verified you know that um, that token is valid and you can use that ID um, as a way to you know save data or whatever um, it's just a it, it, it's a it's a much more optimized way of doing that if you don't have to make that separate i/O call um, awesome awesome all right so again I'll ask again did we miss anything I, I again I there's just so much information here but I think we covered Pretty much all of it.
1: Yeah, I think, I think we are good. New things might come up in the future. Uh, no spoilers, of course. Uh, and if, if we miss something, you know, maybe ping
0: us on Twitter or LinkedIn.
1: I'm happy to learn from the community as well.
0: Right. So if something comes up and people want to get a hold of you or they want to learn uh, more about uh, uh, power tuning, lambda power tuning and stuff like that, how how do they do that?
1: So you can find me on Twitter, Alex Casalboni. We'll add a few links and also uh, LinkedIn. Those are the two Mm -hmm. platforms I use the most. And uh, well, the project is on GitHub, we're going to add a a link as well, I I think. And uh, I might actually go and write down a blog post with actual images about all of these, especially all the different uh, patterns and the different visualization um, scenarios. So wait for it.
0: Awesome. All right. And then you've got, you know, your website, alexcastleboni.com. You write on dev.2, you write on medium. Um, there's that test function slash pattern thing. I'll include that uh, in the show notes as well. Uh, Alex, thank you so much. Awesome information as always. Um, hopefully I will get to see you in person again at some point. Um, probably not this year, but maybe next year We'll uh, once we have 2020 in our rear view. Um, but uh, thanks again, Alex. I really appreciate you being on.
1: Thank you very much, Jeremy, and thanks for all you're doing for the serverless community.
0: And that's this week's serverless chat. I want to give a huge thank you to Alex Casalboni for being my guest this week and to our sponsors, Epsilon and Amazon Web Services. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 69. For more serverless chat, subscribe, sign up to be an insider, check us out on YouTube, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can connect with me on Twitter, at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you want to keep up to date on everything serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.